This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. For the first three quarters of 2008, Brazil's economy grew at a robust rate of more than 6%. As the world financial crisis takes its toll, signs have begun to appear that business in Brazil could run into trouble. The Bavispa stock market index has been volatile, and falling commodity prices have eroded export earnings. How will Brazil fare during the coming months? To answer this question, Knowledge at Wharton interviewed leaders from industries ranging from petrochemicals and telecommunications to banking, real estate, and manufacturing. In this special report, CEOs and other experts share their insights into what's in store for Brazil. Uh, our guest today is Bob Mangles, uh, Chairman and CEO of Mangles Industries in Sao Paulo. Uh, Bob, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Uh, well, the question on everyone's mind these days is what's going on in the global economy. Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, it's the question in my mind, too. <laughs> I don't think anybody really knows exactly what's going on, except for the fact that everybody is very much aware with how we, are, we seem to be caught in a terrible, vicious circle all around the world, and it just seems to be feeding on itself. And every market that goes down affects the next market that goes down, and it just keeps following the different time zones. <laughs> Um, I was just uh, thinking about some, uh, you know, a comparison between what's going on these days versus what happened in 1929. Mm -hmm. And in 1929, we did not have computers, we did not have the fast communications like we have today, and uh, the reaction to the situations were not nearly as quick. And it took years for this whole problem to the, the whole problem they had at the time to work itself through all of the markets and, and the whole system. And what, what it seems what seems to be happening this time is that the the quickness and instantaneous the quick the quickness of the communication, the instantaneous uh, uh, knowledge that people have of what's going on everywhere in the world at all times has created a lightning speed of of, of things happening that is something that I don't think anybody has experienced before. It's when you have a downturn which is, which is being um, propagated and also communicated instantly everywhere in the world, the effects of this are just simply not very well known, I don't think, compared to what used to be a crash in 1929. So, so it's quite scary of what's going on all around the world because uh, I don't think anybody knows where this is going to take us. If you were to think about the Brazilian economy and the manufacturing sector specifically, uh, what would you say has been the impact so far and what do you see coming down the road? Interestingly enough, in Brazil, um, we have yet to see any financial institution uh, fail in spite of all of these problems that we've been having here. Um, the, the common, shall we say, imp impression is that all of the major financial institutions in Brazil seem to be healthy and seem to be weathering the storm pretty well. Um, I would say that the main implications so far have been 
a very high volatility in the dollar versus the uh, local currency, the hail. And secondly, an incredible drop in the stock market. Uh, to give you an idea, uh, the stock market points level in May, which was when we had the peak, was somewhere around 71, 72,000 points. And today we're looking at less than 35,000 points. So it's really an incredible drop since May. And so many companies have lost so much value in the stock market, which is re really incredible. What has happened to some companies, and perhaps more will show up, is that over the since over the last several years, we have had a steadily declining real versus dollar rate. In other words, the local currency has been steadily becoming stronger and stronger against the dollar. With no sign of this letting up, uh, many companies took some risks on dollar versus real financial instruments betting that the dollar or betting that the local currency would continue to evaluate bit by bit and with this sudden devaluation of our local currency some companies were caught by surprise and have had huge losses in the hundreds of millions of reais some companies have have had losses in the billions of reais so that has really uh, affected the market and has made the market in Brazil that much more jittery. The companies that were affected, interestingly enough, were not banks. The companies affected were industrial companies who had been speculating on the currency, actually betting on the currency. Uh, the, the Brazilian president, Lula, has been complaining that a lot of companies lost a lot of money because they were betting against the currency, but that's not true. They were betting in favor of the currency, and the currency went the other way. So this has been something that has, uh, shall we say, made the stock market investors nervous because it is not clear how many companies really have had significant losses with these different uh, hedging or, shall we say, financial instruments. That, that's a very interesting point because uh, what you're saying is undoubtedly true uh, in the sense of companies incurring losses because of speculation. Uh, on the other hand, when the currency goes down, it might also help to trigger some exports. Would that be a, a good sign for manufacturing in Brazil? Well, sure. If, if um, uh, the industrial sector of Brazil has been complaining for years that our currency has become overvalued, which has hurt exports out of Brazil. The reason that Brazil has had a very, very high um, balance of trade surplus is that Brazil is a very large producer of commodities, whether it be iron ore or whether it be soybeans and paper and pulp and other products. Uh, Brazil has had, an, had a very, very high export of these products because we have a high production. And, and so you might say because we don't have too much choice because we have, a higher, we have a production which is much larger than what the market locally can absorb. 
So Brazil is a net exporter of several commodities and probably will be for many, many years. Uh, do you also find that because of the drop in values of good companies in, in the stock market, that this is likely to create buying opportunities? Yes, I think so. Um, I would say uh, some companies are now beginning to seriously think of a stock buyback program. Those companies who were not seriously affected cash-wise by any speculation and at the same time are seeing their shares go down, uh, they're noticing that their shares are becoming extremely attractive and they are uh, seriously thinking of a stock buyback program. In Brazil, um, there is, uh, it's, uh, there's a law that says that a, a publicly traded company in Brazil is allowed to buy back 10% of its free float at any given time within one year. You have one year, once, once the board of directors approves the buyback program, you have one year to buy those 10% of the shares back if you want to. But you don't even have to do that. You can just buy some and, and don't buy the rest. Interesting. Uh, what would you say are some of the other challenges that manufacturing companies in Brazil face? Uh, for example, I know in certain other parts of the world, uh, manufacturers are very concerned about Chinese imports and the Chinese uh, dominance in manufacturing. Uh, is that a factor for manufacturers here at all? Absolutely, it is. Um, we have several sectors that are suffering heavy imports out of China. Uh, one of them is the uh, toy sector, which has a lot of imports. Another one is auto parts, and that's a sector where we are involved and we do have some products which are being imported that compete directly against ours, such as aluminum wheels, which is a product that we make. Um, however, at the same time, depending on the industry, the customers want to have local manufacturing because they realize that if you import something from far away, especially when it's part of a manufacturing or a assembly process, shall we say. In other words, if you, if you were to import auto parts which need to be assembled into a ready-made automobile, then to have the logistics of this auto part start someplace in China and make its way to a factory in Brazil is risky. Mm -hmm. So the preference of the car companies, just to take the sector as an example, is to have lo local manufacturers to give more confidence and credibility, not credibility, but confidence and, and to assure that, that logistically those products will be always readily available for the factory, for the customer. Since we are speaking about your company, I, I, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the quite fascinating history of the company. I believe you were founded as an immigrant-founded business in the 1920s. Well, could actually... tell us the story? Well... <laughs> Last October 1st, which is only 10 days ago, nine days ago, uh, we celebrated our 80th birthday. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. And the company was founded October 1st, 1928 by my grandfather and his partner. Uh, my grandfather was Max Mangels Jr. His partner was named Heinrich Kreuzberg. And the two of them began a manufacturing company. Interestingly enough, they wanted to manufacture something they didn't know what. 
and they thought of many different products that were being imported at the time and decided on galvanized buckets, steel buckets. And there's a, you may have seen the, uh, one of those buckets out in the front hallway. I don't know if you've looked at the his historical section of our entrance here, but anyway. And so they began making these galvanized buckets, then they went into some uh, parts for uh, electric light posts, which are also galvanized, so they kept using the galvanizing. Uh, and then uh, in the 30s, uh, an entrepreneur in Brazil began distributing liquefied petroleum gas, which is called propane in the United States, for cooking. And uh, he sure he soon enough needed gas cylinders to distribute his cooking gas. And so he asked my grandfather if he wouldn't mind making gas bottles. And uh, the extent of my grandfather's strategic planning and feasibility analysis was basically with the answer, why not? <laughs> and so we, that's how we started making LP gas cylinders. And we've been making them ever since. So this year we've been making LP gas cylinders for 70 years and we continue to be in the market. We are the largest and one of the only ones remaining that are still making gas cylinders. Uh, my father and my uncle, who were born here in Brazil, uh, they finished high school in Brazil and then they went both to college in the U.S., in Pennsylvania. They both attended Lafayette College in Pennsylvania, which is not too far from where you people live. And uh, both of them became engineers, and both of them joined the company in the 50s. And they worked in the company from the 50s until the late 80s, and which is when I assumed the presidency of the company back in 1989. Anyway, what my uncle and my father did during their watch, shall we say, was first of all, in the late 50s, uh, they entered the automobile market by making steel wheels for cars and some other auto parts. They did that. Uh, they, they, the, that was the first investment in the automotive business. Then in the 60s, they invested in a business which today is half of Mangle's business, and that is cold-rolled steel strip. In other words, we went into buying flat-rolled steel from the steel mills and processing this steel in a way to add value to it. And from flat rolled steel, these big coils of steel, we are today making, and we were already then were making um, strapping for, uh, for packaging, uh, the steel strip for saw blades, for springs, and for a number of different uses uh, around in, in Brazil. Today, one of our biggest customers is Honda Motorcycle in Brazil. They buy a lot of our steel. Um, and we also have a number of other auto parts suppliers who use our steel. One of them is a, two of them make clutches and we make the spring steel for, for clutch springs, to give you another example. Then in the, this is the, how, this is the business that we went into in the 60s. And then, uh, so, in the 70s, we decided to stop supplying steel wheels to the auto companies because it would have meant an incredibly large investment. We decided to go into aftermarket wheels, steel wheels. 
And during the 80s, we found out that the aftermarket was starting to prefer aluminum light alloy wheels instead of steel wheels. And so we imported a used aluminum wheel plant from Germany for $1 million at the end of late 80s and started making aluminum wheels. And we have since 1989 become the largest aluminum wheel maker in South America. And, uh, and we have been supplying all the car companies that exist uh, in this market. So, so that's become uh, today over about a third of our business. As I said, this, the cold road steel business is roughly 50%. Uh, 15% of our business continues to be the gas cylinders. And 5% is the galvanizing business, which was, is the oldest business we have today. It used to galvanize buckets. Now, we, instead of making buckets, Mangles makes guardrails for highways. So we uh, galvanize our own uh, guardrails, but mostly we galvanize uh, steel parts for third parties. Our revenues this year will be, our net revenues this year will be somewhere in the neighborhood of 750 million reais, which is, depending on the dollar rate, which seems to be fluctuating quite a bit, will be somewhere around 350 to 400 million dollars, something like that. Thank you for taking us through you know, the different generations of, of your family's history. And one of the things that has always fascinated me about family-owned businesses is the track record of companies that make it successfully to the third generation is, is, is relatively a very small percentage that, that, make, that succeeds. In the case of your company and your family, what do you think are the attributes that allowed that to happen and, and evidently quite successfully? Well, I think that one of them is that we had able, we had able business people available in each of the generations so far to, to run the business. Uh, I think it's also important that I say what my definition of a family business is. And uh, the, for me, the definition of a family business is, is not only a, f a business that's owned by a particular family, but also a business that is run by the family and not just sitting on the board. Uh, a lot of people consider just sitting on the board as being a family business, but it's, I don't believe it's very much of a family business. It may be called a family investment, but not a family business. And the reason I say that is that when you're on the board and you look at the company as an investment, you slowly start thinking more and more like an investor and less and less like a family owning a business. And the reason I say that is because an investor has a different mindset than a family business or a business family, you might call it. A business family values not only the return on investment, but a business family values the legacy that has been left for the current generation. And it values what type of legacy the current generation is going to leave for the next generation. You know, how does each generation add value to the business, which it will leave to the next generation. And to me, that has a lot to do with being a family business, and that's the mindset of a family business. Uh, it always happens that members of any generation may choose to sell some of their shares 
So the business family must create an internal market for shares so that different members of the family who really don't identify or are not that interested in the business could sell their shares and do something else with the money. And those that continue to believe in the legacy of the family business and the future of the business and and hopefully the next generation becoming responsible for the business, that that can continue. If the family is an investor, the mindset of an investor is not to, is to is to not put your eggs all in one basket. So bit by bit, the family will probably, over time, decide to sell the business for that reason, or at least sell a majority part of the business. That, that's such a fascinating distinction between family investors and family businesses. I've never heard it expressed quite that way before. What are you doing to prepare the next generation of well, the family I, I, business? And what let, advice would you give? Well, I think that perhaps one of the reasons why it's really clear in my mind what the difference of a family and a non-family business is, is that over the last three years, my siblings and I, plus our spouses, have been meeting on a regular basis to, first of all, define our role as shareholders of the business. Secondly, to define the role of the entire family as the extended family of this business family. And what our role is as far as the future, as far as succession is concerned, as far as succession not only of the shares, but also the succession of the management. And what legacy do do we want to leave for the next generation? Uh, We have gone through the process of defining what our values are as a family, or as a business family, shall we say. Uh, We have already uh, written a family member employment policy that defines what are the criteria and rules for a family member to be able to work for the family business. You know, it's not a given that anybody who wants to can just join the family business. We have criteria for that. Um, We're in the process of, uh, and we wrote already the mission of our family. And we also want to uh, determine a little better what the values and the mission of the company should be in the future. Uh, so far, the mission of the company has been written by the management of the company, not by the owners. And uh, bit by bit, we would like the, shall we say, the Mangles business family to have its uh, imprint in the company. Uh, happily, I can say that my family believes in uh, a very good, good corporate governance believes in a very uh, transparent type of management, uh, believes in following the letter of the law, uh, believes in treating employees fairly and with respect. Uh, We believe in a sustainable type of company that is not going to hurt the environment or hurt people in order to make money and be successful. So there's a lot of values that we, that, that we have and things that we believe in, which I feel that we're going to be able to, in an organized fashion, pass on to the next generation. If I were to ask you about your t- tenure and the leadership of the company, 
What would you say is the biggest leadership challenge you faced? How did you overcome it? And what did you learn from it? Oh, boy. Um, probably the, the toughest period that we faced was right after I became president. Um, Brazil, when I, when I became president in 1989, Brazil had hyperinflation. And since that year, Brazil went through a few attempts in fighting the inflation. And in order to fight inflation, uh, the governments, the different, different decisions were made along the way during the 90s in order to, to in, in, were made to hold back the inflation, but at the same time, when you are fighting inflation in a very serious manner, uh, you can create easily a recession, which did happen more than once. Uh, you create a situation where companies start having difficulties because perhaps they don't have the cost structure that they need to have and so forth. Uh, what happened in the 90s was a combination of inflation fighting and also opening up the Brazilian market to imports and to bigger or larger international trade. The the biggest, the big change, on, uh, aside from the inflation fighting efforts, one of the, uh, the biggest change that happened was that the average import duties fell from 60% in, in 1989 to about 10 or 12% in 1992 or 93. So in a matter of just two or three years, we had an incredibly lower uh, import duties and with that, a flood of imports. And it meant that we had to drop our prices by, shall we say, at least 30% or something like that. And we simply did not have the cost structure to do so. To give an example, perhaps the most dramatic period in the beginning was to have to drop the number of employees from 4,000 employees, which Mangles had at the time, to about 1,500. That was the drop in number of employees that we had. We had to drop the number of officers of the company. We had to drop the number of managers, the number of supervisors. I mean, it was done from top to bottom. We had to eliminate businesses that were costing us money and not making returns. We had to really make an incredible number of changes in the company in order for the company to survive. So that was extremely difficult, and I can say that it took a lot of determination and courage at the time to keep up this policy of reducing people because, as you can imagine, the, the working climate inside the company was, was horrible. Everybody here was afraid to lose their jobs. And, and, but the, on the other hand, this was happening in most companies around Brazil. Everybody was doing downsizing, which, of course, affected the level of the economy, the economy stopped growing, we had difficulties with recessions because everybody was reducing the number of people in the companies. Uh, there was an incredibly strong movement towards higher quality. Uh, that's when Brazil launched, the 90s was when, when Brazil launched the, uh, uh, its National Quality Award. 
to try and stimulate companies to become more competitive and, and, and produce better quality. So the 90s were an incredible adjustment period for companies to, to lower their costs, increase their productivity, and increase their quality, and do this while surviving cash-wise all at the same time. So that, I would say, was probably the biggest challenge that I faced. Uh, perhaps we had a huge challenge, maybe it was just as big as it was then, towards the year 2000 when we suffered a major exchange rate devaluation. And in Brazil, the interest rates have always been very, very high in relation to the inflation. Uh, we would easily have 15, 20% real inflation rate after uh, interest rates after inflation. In other words, on top of inflation, the real uh, interest rate was still 15 to 20%. So if you wanted to live off of loans, you would, you would go broke very, very quickly. And the only way that we could survive with loans, which Mangles did have at the time because we just we just were not totally capitalized, especially after having made all the adjustments earlier. We had a lot of dollar loans. That was the only way we could survive is by having dollar loans. So then what happens? We had a major devaluation, and those dollar loans basically threw our equity down to almost zero. So that was a moment that was extremely scary as well, around the year 2000, or 99 rather, is when the, when the devaluation happened. So that was quite scary too. But since it happened to everybody in Brazil, the banks were rather lenient and realized that this was an accounting loss and that at the same time, we had a tremendous opportunity to start exporting more and also an opportunity to be able to raise our prices locally because the imports were gonna be more costly. And so therefore we could go back and start selling more products locally because the, uh, there was a natural uh, exchange, foreign exchange rate barrier to imports. So that was a pretty tough period. Too. So what would you say you learned from these, overcoming these challenges? Well, I think that uh, one of the things that I learned is that you really need to have a good group of dedicated and committed people working with you that believe in you and are willing to, you know, um, with you make the tough changes that have to be made. Uh, not everybody in the company was willing to make those huge changes because they were very committed to their employees and did not want to have to face their employees and say, I'm sorry, you're just going to have to leave because otherwise the company isn't going to survive. And they were just not willing to do that. So we, have, we had to let them go as well. Um, and that's where you really have to be tough minded and say what are the priorities you know is it better to survive with half the people or not survive at all and have 100% of the people lose their jobs i mean that that's the choice that's the choice you have to make and so in the end you have to sit down with the people and say i'm sorry but for the company to survive somebody is going to have to leave the company because we just do not have the cost structure to support it and so, generally, I would say people were understanding of this. Obviously, they were very upset and very sad because they had to leave their jobs. 
and it was not easy at the time to get new jobs because a lot of companies were doing that. So, so I would say that having uh, having the the <laughs> the the mindset to weather that and to believe that that's really the way you have to go, and uh, you do feel sorry for the people. Obviously, it's very very stressing to know that so many people and families are going to be without their breadwinner and they're not going to be, be making any money and they're going to suffer. But at the same time, we tried to give everybody a generous, uh, uh, a, a generous package when they left, even the factory workers. And, uh, and generally, uh, I, I think that we, uh, we, were, we were met with a lot of understanding you know, obviously with a lot of sadness, but at the same understanding. Uh, so I think that's something that, that we learned is that you just have to make sure that, you, that you're always thinking in benefit of the company. You have, to, you have to always believe that the decisions that you make have to always be best for the company in spite of the interests of the individuals who are in the company. And that is valid f from, for the factory worker and that is valid for the CEO. You know, even the CEO runs the risk of having to leave the company if the CEO is not adequate, perhaps by not having taken the best interests of the company into account. Everybody has to play by those rules. And I think that's something that, that, we, that we learned had to be done at all times. And, and some companies perhaps did not act quickly enough to make those decisions in order to survive. One last question. What is your dream for the future of Mangles Industries? Well, my dream is that Mangles become a multinational company, that we have plants all over the world. Um, we are already shall we say, reflecting on this in specific ways. For example, our wheel business is a business which who the, our, our biggest competitors in the wheel business are the multinational wheel competitors. To give you an idea, our wheel business today is manufacturing somewhere in the neighborhood of two and a half million wheels per year. Uh, we have the largest production in South America, but We are a regional company, and the big ones, the big multinational companies in the wheel business are making anywhere from 15 to 20 million wheels a year, and they have plants all over the world. And that's the, that's the way we're headed, and we need to maximize the opportunities and potential of each of our businesses in that manner. And as far as I'm concerned, the sky is the limit. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.